Well, good morning, St. Aldate's. It's wonderful to be with you and uh, here in church, which is surrounded by beautiful white snow. It's just tremendous to come into the warm presence of God. Let's pray together as we come to the Lord's living word. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what Jono referred to earlier as the holy books. Thank you that we can open the holy book this morning, the book of Philippians, and we seek to be renewed in you. May our ears be open to everything that you have for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, I'd like to begin by considering where the author of our passage this morning in Philippians finds himself as he writes this. And as I speak, we're going to put up a photo of the Russian political opposition leader and blogger Alexei Navalny, who, as many of you will know, returned to Moscow last Sunday, was immediately arrested by the authorities, and whose captivity sparked protests across Russia yesterday. And uh, it's an interesting photo because it captures something of the quality which surrounded Paul's own captivity at the time that he created this letter. Paul, in this letter, is, in his own words, in chains. He's under house arrest. He may be in prison or not. But he's likely in physical chains, 18-inch chains, which connect him to a member of the Praetorian Guard. That is the elite unit of bodyguards uh, who belonged to the Emperor Nero. They were like a kind of secret police. Paul is in their clutches. He is facing opposition from without. He is captive to the Imperial Roman army. He's facing challenge from within. Preachers from within the Christian faith who are preaching against Paul. And there appears, in one sense, to have been an apparent stalling of all of God's purposes. He's about to go on to write sober words in chapter 3, verse 18. As I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So if you feel pinned down this morning held back, locked down, locked up, then take heart from the example of Paul. Because what might have been the result for him? Depression, a broken spirit, an inability to write, rumour going out to the world that he was a crushed man, despair and disarray, within the Philippian church. And yet Paul's tone here is one of joy. He is rejoicing in this darkest hour. So what was the joy that carried Paul in spite of everything that he was experiencing? Because like Jesus before him, Paul endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. Well, in this passage, he expresses 
that his joy is that nothing is holding back the gospel. He has heard of gospel progress in the Philippian church from which he's been away for some time and he is seeing advance in his context. And the word that he uses for this advance is prokope in the Greek. And it's the word that's used for the progress of an army as it cuts away obstacles and impediments which are in its path. Paul is locked down, but the gospel is advancing. And he feels joy because this is God's advance. It's not his own personal advance. He doesn't credit it to himself. He sees it as coming exclusively from God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to me, has come upon me, has really served to advance the gospel. God has redeemed his situation. And we might recall the words of Joseph to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Paul just knows this deep security that God is advancing his divine purposes in the face of all opposition. And how does this speak to us in this moment? Well, I've heard various images and metaphors given for the place that we all find ourselves in at the moment. I've heard it described as a sandstorm, a labyrinth, a fog, and probably after this morning, it'll be a snow blizzard. And all of those are telling images, and they speak to the fact that at the moment we feel we lack perspective. We can't see very far in front of ourselves. They correlate to our human experience, these images and metaphors, but they're based on human understanding. Paul's perspective, Paul's view of the horizon ahead is a gospel perspective. Chapter 1 of the Philippians is all about the gospel. Like your coffee this morning, there is one shot of that word gospel every four verses. Paul talks of partnership in the gospel, defending and confirming the gospel, that he is in chains for Christ. Christ is preached that this is his fruitful labour, that he and the Philippians must wrestle for the faith of the gospel. The fact is that a death warrant may arrive at Paul's door at any time. But in the meantime, he rejoices and he acts in alignment with God. He acts in alignment with God's gospel, God's means of winning our salvation and renewing the world that we live in. And like a plane that's kind of taking off on a foggy runway and then it crests the fog and suddenly the view is clear. Or Theseus caught in the labyrinth who finds Ariadne's thread and is led out of that maze. You've got to have something to get you out of the fog, to get you out of the maze. And that focus is... I submit the gospel, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, wherever he's currently placed you. Because Paul is caught here in a game of thrones. 
And yet for him, there is only one true throne and one true king. And his call and our call is to glorify that king, King Jesus. So I just want to briefly review the inception of the Philippian church some probably 10 years earlier than Paul is writing here. And I want to talk about three hallmarks that advances the gospel. What are the three hallmarks of a church standing firm in the gospel? What three things can sustain your spiritual life and mine and see gospel advance? Well, the first is a joy in Christ and the gospel that leads to overflowing praise. And we've had some amazing praise from the band here in church this morning. The Philippian church began with Paul rejoicing in chains in prison in Philippi, and he's still rejoicing in chains now. He says, I rejoice, yes, and I continue to rejoice. And later on, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You remember, Paul and Silas had been arrested back in Philippi. They'd been beaten, they'd been flogged, they'd been thrown into the inner cell of a prison, following one power encounter after another that they'd experienced since coming to Philippi. And they might have sunk in self-pity, or they might have complained of the way they'd been treated to God. And yet they chose instead to praise him. And Paul's rejoicing, his praise then and his praise now in the present as he writes, begins when he kisses his chains. What do I mean by this? Well, Paul doesn't see his chains in terms of their power physically to restrict him. Instead, as in our passage, he sees himself in chains for Christ. He appropriates his chains for Christ's purposes. And at a time when we're all at risk of feeling really limited, I think, in our own agency, there's a tremendous power in this action. Let me illustrate this with a story. Pierre Darcourt was a Frenchman in World War II caught up in the French resistance but he was betrayed to the Nazis. He was thrown into a cell like Paul and he was handcuffed to an iron bed. And he was due to be tortured. Can you imagine how he felt? For the first hour, utterly terrified and helpless. And this is how Paul too might have felt, shackled 24-7 to a member of the Roman Praetorian Guard. But then Darcourt did this. He lifted his face to God. He sensed that the only way forward was to offer up his suffering to God. He, he not only needed to find the courage to accept the suffering that was coming, but he realized to thank God in advance for the insights it was going to give him into God's love. He writes this, then the inspiration came to me to kiss the chains which held me prisoner. I'm not a credulous person, but there can be no doubt in my mind that some great power from outside momentarily entered into me. Once my lips had 
touched the steel, I was freed from the terror that possessed them. I turned them from bonds into a key. In the blackness of that night, my faith gave me light. Peace returned to me, and I slept quietly, accepting death which would bring me life. You see, without kissing his chains, Darkort would not have been able to see beyond his own diminishment. But kissing them, accepting them, he recovers his agency. And a great power from God enters him, and he's at peace. We may be in this place of peace before we praise, or praise may lift us into the place of peace. But for Paul, praise is always the key to transform any situation. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Richard Vermbrand was a Romanian Jew who became a Christian in 1938. And he was imprisoned and tortured for his faith for 14 years by the communist authorities. Three of them he spent in solitary confinement. And he discovered the power of praise, like Paul, through another prisoner, an orthodox priest. This is what Vermbrand writes. The priest never greeted people with good morning, but always with the biblical rejoice. And I asked him, you've had so much misfortune, how can you rejoice always? Why, it's a grave sin not to do so, he said. There's always good reason to rejoice. There's a God in heaven and in the heart. Every day you do not rejoice is a day lost. Praise begins with gratitude and then it progresses as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we declare his sovereignty. Praise doesn't preclude us lamenting, but the architecture of most of the lament psalms is that David laments in a context of praise. We need to praise because otherwise the danger is, is that we simply lament and we fold in upon ourselves. We get carried away through our own self-focus. Praise carries us into the heavenly presence of the Lord and our problems are held within his embrace. And a song of praise that God gives Paul and Silas in Philippi, it, it does so many things. It shakes the power of darkness. It releases the jailer's family from spiritual captivity. It ultimately liberates that city for the gospel, and it leads to the gospel beginning to penetrate the continent of Europe. So the gospel advances through praise. Secondly, it advances through a joy in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ through preaching. Preaching marked the inception of the Philippian church. If you remember, to a businesswoman, to a demonized slave girl, and to a Roman jailer. And now Paul is held under house arrest with a revolving watch of the Praetorian Guard coming every four hours. And what's he going to do? He's going to use his captivity to take captive his audience. It's clear from chapter 4, verse 22 of Philippians that this results in many conversions. 
He says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul has converted members of Nero's elite of elites. I calculated that if there was a change of watch every four hours, so let's say four watches over 16 hours of the waking day, for 365 days, for 18 months, probably the time that Paul has been in captivity for before he writes this letter, that gave him 2,190 gospel opportunities to preach Christ. And this passage reads like a masterclass on preaching. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Christ is preached. For Paul, preaching must be focused on the sovereignty and the all-sufficiency of Christ. You see, Paul is surrendered to the Romans, but he's surrendered to a much greater purpose. And it's all to demonstrate to them the love that has saved him. As Simon described last week, God's love had unchained Paul's heart, and he could never forget it. I love the way that Richard Vermbrand, that man who was tortured in Romania, talks about the way God tenderized his heart towards the communist authorities who were torturing him. He recalls an old rabbinic text and writes this. The Jews have a legend that when their forefathers were saved from Egypt and the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea, the angels joined the songs of triumph sung by the Israelites. And God said to the angels... The Jews are men and can rejoice about their escape. But from you, I expect more understanding. Are the Egyptians not also my creatures? Do I not love them too? How do you fail to feel my sorrow about their tragic fate? Vermbrand understood that God loved his torturers and that changed his heart. And Paul loves those who have shackled him. But the preaching's not just happening here in his captivity, it's happening in the house churches. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's a bit like the impact of that opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, in Russia, the way that his captivity is sparking popular protest. And Paul is warning in this passage against any temptation for preaching to become distracted from Christ. To preach a Christ plus gospel or a Christ who is not Christ crucified. For Paul, preaching must place Christ crucified center stage. The apostle at Pentecost is given spirit-filled words to proclaim Christ. Nothing else will do. And I remember that for the 18 months before I became a Christian, before I walked into HTB and took an Alpha course and heard the gospel preached for the first time in my life as an adult, for the 18 months before that, I had sat every Sunday in a liberal church in the centre of London. And I'd heard faithful, winsome preaching about Jesus, the good teacher. And it was beautiful, but it had no profound impact on me because it wasn't the gospel it wasn't Christ crucified 
For Paul, the gospel advances through the content of our preaching Christ. He's not very interested in the motives of those who are preaching. There's a bunch of people out there, outside his prison, who are preaching against him, who are personally attacking him. Paul's not flustered. He's sanguine. They're still preaching Jesus Christ. And he ends up celebrating that such preaching finds an outlet in every way, he says. Preaching is for the synagogues, it's for the streets, it's for the prisons. If you're a preacher or an evangelist and you currently lack an outlet, I heard this week about something called watch parties. A watch party at the moment is where you gather friends, interested, curious neighbours on Zoom on a Sunday morning and you screen share a service like this service coming from St Aldate's. And then afterwards, when you finish the service and the screen share, you all stay on Zoom together and you have coffee and you're able to host a conversation about Jesus and about what people have heard and experienced. Do consider that. Because when events conspire to shut us down, God creates new opportunities for us to find agency. Do you know the book of Acts ends with this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. He was always preaching. He was always praising. He was always preaching. Paul wins no awards at all for novelty. He wins a gold medal for consistency. He never deviates from the essentials. So the gospel advances through preaching. And then finally, the gospel advances through a joy in contending together for the faith of the gospel, what Paul calls prevailing prayer. Paul counsels the Philippians to stand firm in one faith, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That is holding ground for the gospel, contending against the principalities and powers. We might say that Paul's already been contending in this passage through his praise and his preaching, but generally in Paul's writing, contending refers to prayer, contending, prevailing prayer. I don't know what your prayer life has looked like in lockdown recently, but there's certainly been moments for me where my prayer life has become focused on my own needs and I feel as if I have sucked God into this terrible whirlpool, this morass of introspection. Nothing good comes of it. My prayer collapses in on itself like a kind of undercooked cake. Contending prayer is outward-focused prayer, like praise. And the sense of the word standing here that Paul uses is to be prepared for conflict. In the Greek, it means hold your ground, not to march or to advance, but to claim that the ground we're on is for God, that it is indeed his. We maintain and consolidate the victory which Christ has already won. Those popular protests across Russia yesterday, some of them in temperatures of minus 30 and minus 50, consisted of protesters standing shoulder to shoulder, standing ground against the secret police. 
This is what Paul exhorts us to do, to contend faithfully as one man, to pray with one faith. In the Greek, that's in one spirit, literally in one breath and with one breath. We're, we're that united. Contending is a kind of non-violent resistance that we do together. Just like those protesting alongside Martin Luther King at the time of the Montgomery bus boycott did. And you remember how that disarmed the police and the military authorities entirely. Contending frees us from fear. In the words of Paul in chapter 1, we speak more courageously and fearlessly. And we're not frightened in any way by those who oppose us. Can you imagine what the impact of such vocal prayer from Paul must have been on these members of the Praetorian Guard as they sat shackled to him? They'd fought on every battlefield in Europe. They'd seen a contending there, but they'd never seen a contending like they saw in Paul, a contending of body, mind and spirit. Of course, there's always the danger that we become intimidated by a person such as Paul. And he certainly has specified the distinctives of his situation in this passage. But he never says that the struggle that he's involved in is above our spiritual pay grade. He says we're all suffering for Christ, we're all standing on a front line, and we're all contending for the gospel. And so as I invite the band back up, I'd like to ask you today, where are you contending? Where are you resisting? Or where have you been tempted to give in to the enemy? Perhaps concealing your faith at work or admitting to stand up for Christian values, maybe simply becoming like that collapsed, undercooked cake in your prayer life and your worship life. How do we gain strength and joy? By returning to the story of our own place within the gospel. This is what Paul always goes back to, and it lifts him out of the labyrinth, out of the fog, out of the sandstorm. I think he never forgot the true chains that he'd been released from, the spiritual ones. Charles Wesley put it like this in his great hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We sang earlier that the blood of Christ breaks the chains. And I want to encourage you to remember this morning as followers of Christ, the chains of sin, death, and the demonic have been broken off us. Our citizenship, friends, is in heaven. And yes, we're currently captive too, in a way. But we too can commit our captivity for Christ and to Christ. And so stand firm in one spirit, beloved St. Aldate's, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.